Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Anne Brannan, and I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Tuscaloosa. And we are going backwards in time. What were we doing last time? We were talking... We were talking about Melisande of Jerusalem. Oh, Melisande. Yes, yes, yes. We were in Jerusalem last time. We're going back. Um, we're going back to England, and we're going back in time. We're talking about the time that Erpwald of East Anglia was assassinated sometime after 627, maybe as long after that as 632, in East Anglia, in England. That's what we're talking about. And Erpwald was the king of the East Angles. This is the same people who might have been the Geats that show up in Beowulf. Might have been. We think so, but we're not really sure. He was one of the Wolfingas, who theoretically had been descended from Wufa, who probably didn't exist. He might have, he was like an ancestral figure, and he might have been the first ruler in East Anglia, but maybe not. But because all of this, there's different lines and different manuscripts and different with different writers. And at any rate, they're the Wolfingas, in other words, the little wolves, and they're in East Anglia. They were from originally from the area where now Denmark meets Germany, and they established kingdoms in East Anglia and Northumbria, which is now Northern England and and Southern Scotland, and Mercia, which is now the Midlands. Anyway, so East Anglia. Erpwald was king from about 624 when his father, Radwald, died. We'll be hearing some more about him later from Michelle. And he wasn't king very long because he converted to Christianity in 627 and he got assassinated pretty soon after that. So let's, what's our background? What's the context of this? Christianity, we're going to talk about religion. Christianity had come to Britain certainly by the early third century. That's when it first shows up in writings, although it would have been there earlier. We just don't know how much earlier. And the other religions on the island at that time, besides the Christianity, which was just arriving, were Roman, such as, for instance, Mithraism and the devotees of Cabelli. There were several things going on with the Romans. And the local native religion, which was polytheistic. And because we have the writings from them, we have the writings from them, we have evidence in archaeology, uh, we have things that the Romans wrote down and things that the Christians wrote down later. We know some stuff about what is Celtic paganism. The Druids were the priests, but actually we know very, very little about them because all of the writings were done by people who were trying to get rid of them. So the Gauls on the continent converted to a sort of mixed Roman Celtic religion. The Celts of Britain didn't so much. Though once the Angles and the Saxons and the Jutes took over much of the island, you know, except for Wales and Cornwall and the Isle of Man and a bunch of Scotland above Northumbria, they, they started converting to the religion that the Germanic tribes were practicing. And their brand of paganism was also polytheistic. And much as with the Celts, our knowledge of it comes from Christians, such as Bede and Odhelm and Norse writings. What we do know, because we do have some of the Norse writings, what we do know is that the gods and goddesses are versions of, of the Norse deities. Woden, the god of wisdom and death and whatnot, is from Odin. We get Wednesday from that. Uh, Thunor, for instance, the god of strength and storms and whatnot, is Thor, and we get Thursday from that. 
Teal was Tyr. Then we get Tuesday from that. That's the a, one of the war gods. The Romans thought it was the same as Mars. It wouldn't be. And Frigga was from for Friday. She's the goddess of motherhood and things like that. And so we know that there were versions. They they had versions of the Norse gods and goddesses. We think they had sacred trees. They had some wooden temples. They buried and cremated their dead with grave goods. And we're going to have more on that later because Michelle's going to tell us all about Sutton Hoo. Yay! But mostly we kind of guess and suppose, except that they did use a rune system for their alphabet with symbols. Each of the runes was a symbol for a sound in their language. And they had inherited the rune system from the Scandinavian runes, the Elder Futhark, but they had to add several newer ones for sounds that were in Old English that were not in the Scandinavian. And there's a poem in Old English that gives a little stanza for each of them because each of them was not just a sound and a letter in the alphabet, but also had some kind of meaning so that, that the, and the sounds shifted, you know, from the sounds weren't exactly the same from locale to locale, but they were in general, they were recognizable, but they had a meaning so that the uh, rune, which meant the sound of W, also was win or joy. And the one which was the sound of G, G also meant yelfu or gift. And the Old English runes are found in seven manuscripts and on 30 objects. So it's not like there's, we only have one or two of them. We've got a bunch. Objects such as the Ruthwell Cross, uh, St. Cuthbert's Coffin, some coins, some jewelry, a comb, and my favorite, a spindle. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what it says. I should have looked that up. I I didn't, but I like that. There's runes on my spindle. And we know that the Scandinavians use runes not only for writing, but also for magic. There's an old Norse poem, Havana, which has a verse of the Havana's a bunch of stanzas. They're all supposedly written by Odin. So this is Odin speaking. Here's one of the stanzas. I know a 12th one. If I see up in, this is a kind of magic. If I see up in a tree, a dangling corpse in a noose, I can so carve and color the runes that the man walks and talks with me. <laughs> that would That's very powerful magic. And we do have some evidence that the early English also used runes for magic. We don't have as strong as evidence as is in that poem, but Bede tells us of, and Michelle is going to talk about Bede too, that's coming up. Bede tells us of a man who keeps escaping his fetters and uh, his captors ask him if he is using loosening letters, uh, runes hmm. that could be used for loosening to get out, to get free. And in the Old English translation of the Latin of breed of Bede, he's asked if he's using rune stones, magic. And we have some oh. other pieces. Isn't that nice? And uh-huh. we have some other pieces of evidence, but that's that are that's more ambiguous, but it makes sense. So this is the old English runes are a very rare example of surviving evidence of old English pagan activities before Christianity. I'm really glad you talked about that because I didn't know anything about that. It definitely was not something that was discussed when when I was an undergraduate. The discussion was basically, well, none of that stuff survives, so we're not we're not going to try to talk about it. <laughs> there, thirty objects and seven manuscripts. Hello. 
Yeah. And that's just the old English runes. That's not the Scandinavian, the Scandinavian runes. Oh, they go on forever. I mean, I would always talk with my students about the how how it survives even into modern English, the connection between literacy and magic, because you use the same word for both. You know, right. Spelling. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Spelling, making spells. Exactly. Spelling words, yeah. Yeah, this association of magic and the sound of language, this is it's quite an interesting one. It is it it really is. And this alphabet is wonderful because it totally makes sense. Our alphabet now that we are speaking modern English, uh, you know, using this wonderful alphabet that we got from the Romans, because we got, we, we, you know, we had some of the old English stuff, but we kind of lost it. There's no thorns anymore. <laughs> no Fs. It's sort of, it's the sounds, but not always. And sometimes it means several kinds of sounds, depending. And it's one of the things that makes English difficult to learn for non-native speakers. But yeah, it was very clear in Scandinavia and amongst the Old English that letters meant a sound, whatever the sound was where you were hanging out, you know. So it's easier, I would think, in some ways to use. You just write down the sound and you've made a spell. Nowadays, people use runes for divination. There's a lot of methods of using them. And I don't, we don't have real evidence as to that happening, but it's it's certainly a reasonable a reasonable supposition of how you might use them to put a few out on a cloth and see which ones they are and talk about them. And I was interested, I was studying the old English runes recently that, you know, there, there's very few concepts, joy is in there, but they're mostly really concrete gift, horse, a torch, (laughs) oak. It's not even like any kind of tree, oak, birch, ash, very concrete so that the things around you have meaning beyond their existence, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At any rate. Yeah, so that's what Erpwald was. His father had converted to Christianity, but Erpwald hadn't. So that's what he was. That's what he was practicing when he converted. He was practicing Old English paganism. That's so Erpwald. Edwin, so at that time, Edwin was the Darien king, and he had had a dream that if he converted to Christianity, he would be greater than all the kings before him. This sounds very familiar. I guess I'm thinking of Constantine. His mother Mm -hmm. was the one who had the dream. He didn't, but he believed her. But he had a vision, too, didn't he, of a cross? Yeah, of the the Cairo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, so he had this dream, and so he converted in 627, and he started to convert Everybody, everybody in Northumbria and East Anglia, as well East Anglia, as well as Lindsay, which was soon going to be part of Northumbria, and so you don't hear about it very much. And he converted Erpwald. And why is not clear? We just have the information that he did that. Why is not clear in terms of religion? And if Erpwald had a dream, we don't know about it, you know, why. But if what Erpwald was doing was being an ally of Edwin, it makes sense because after his conversion, all of the eastern coast of England, with the exception of Essex, was either Edwin's or his Christian allies, the whole east coast. Because if your king converts, then the priest 
can be sent forth to convert the people because, um, which you maybe do or you maybe don't, or maybe you kind of do, but half-heartedly. But a, a nominally shared religion was then, as it still can be, a powerful force politically. Let's have a little moment where we think about religions that are a political force, perhaps in our own country. Ah, oh, yes, not just across the globe. Okay, so at any rate, so they, so Edwin had put together quite some power. Was everybody happy about this? No, everybody was not happy. So Erpwald was killed soon after this by what Beads Bead calls a, um, a Viro Gentili, um, a heathen, whose name was Rikbert. And then after that, Erpwald's kingdom was maybe ruled by Rickbert, but we don't really know that for sure. And it was heathen for three years. Okay. And so the priests stopped converting everybody to Christianity if they were in East Anglia. And that lasted about three years, at which point Sigebert, whom I have not mentioned, but he's either a brother or a stepbrother of Erpwald, He's called a brother, but that name doesn't show up in this particular family, and it comes from a different piece of England, and so he, we think he might have been a stepbrother at any rate. Sigebert came back from Gaul because he had been there for reasons we don't know, exiled, and we don't know why, but he was. He was already a Christian because he converted in Gaul, and he reestablished Christianity in East Anglia. Edwin was in on all this, don't you think? And then they brought in Felix of Burgundy as a missionary bishop with the help of the Archbishop of Canterbury. So they established a bishopric. Uh, and Sigebert established a school for teaching boys to read and write on the model of the schools that he had been really impressed with in Gaul. And these were church schools, you remember, because that's the only kind that existed we refer you to our previous podcast on the student strike at Paris, wherein which we explain the early school system and the rise of the universities. And Sigebert also established uh, monasteries, and eventually, eventually he abdicated to Edric, who was a member of the family. We don't know how a cousin. Well, I don't know. We don't know. He was somebody in the family, and he had been co-ruling. So Sigebert just gave the whole thing to him. And he went off to a monastery that he had built to lead a religious life because, you know, and we think also it was at Bury St. Edmunds. I love that. I hadn't known that when I went to Bury St. Edmunds and I wish I had. Okay. And then, so, well, what happens after this? Because I always like to tell you in the early 640s, Mercia attacked East Anglia. Mercia, Mercia got really, you know, kind of big for its britches for a while. Mercia attacked East Anglia and the East Angles, they wanted Sigebert to come, to leave the monastery and come fight, but he wouldn't. So they dragged him to the battlefield and he refused to fight. He just stood there with his staff. And so not surprisingly, he got killed, as did Edric and most of the army. And so Sigebert became a martyr. Da, da, da. And he is a saint, and we have no idea really when his feast day is because so many Catholic saints' calendars give different days. I don't know, it's all over. We have no idea. You just like, like you can just like, you can have your own St. Sigebert feast pretty much whenever you want, is what I think. 
And by the way, Erpwald is also a saint, because obviously, because he's a martyr. He got killed for being Christian, and although also for political reasons, but okay, he was Christian. And we don't know what his feast day is either, but because it's not written down any place, we have no idea. So you also can have his feast day be whenever you want. And you could even do them together as saints, Sigebert and Erpwald. Why not? They were either brothers or stepbrothers, and they had a cousin. All right. And a bit more of what happened next. Mercia went on to have a golden age, having subdued East Anglia, Essex, Kent, Sussex, and Wessex. And this went on for about 300 years. But then it was over because guess what happened? You had an idea. You had an idea, Michelle. Oh, oh, this is the Vikings showing up. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. The Vikings showed up. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that. If you hadn't believed me, I would have edited it out. But there you are. Yes, the Vikings took over. And so that's the end of Mercia. That was, and in 879, their king, Caolulf II, died. And so no more Mercia. Because <laughs> the Vikings were really quite formidable. East Anglia got weaker and weaker after Mercia defeated it, and then the Vikings took over it in 869, and Edward the Elder defeated a lot of the Vikings, and by 918, East Anglia was under English rule rather than Viking again. And then, what else with East Anglia? I have some, I want to talk about East Anglia, because the thing is, this is where I was doing my research, so I just really love East Anglia. Uh, So then in the 17th century, England brought Dutch engineers over and they drained the fens, which really had been a large piece of East Anglia up in Norfolk. And they drained the fens, uh, which was really kind of sad for all the eel farmers. They drained the fens. And also it's from that country that the Puritans left for New England. So there were about a bunch of East Anglians there. Then later, East Anglia lost its prominence as a very rich textile and wool and farming area because there was an industrial revolution. So the Midlands and the North took over. It's Mercia and Northumbria. So they come back in as industrial centers. And then later after that, the English and American air forces built a bunch of air bases during World War II because the land was so flat. The Norwich International Airport uh, was one of them. They're not all gone. And in general, the shore especially the North Shore of Norfolk, was like a pirating area and a haven for smugglers all around the East Anglian coast because the lowland made it really easy for quick landings and getaways and there were like caves and stuff. And if you go to East Anglia, you can visit King's Lynn, where Marjorie Kemp came from. And you can go to Norwich, where Julian Norwich was an anchoress. The church that she, she was at St. Julian's, we don't actually know what her name was. We just call her Julian of Norwich, but sure, her name wasn't, we don't know her name. She wasn't Julian. At any rate, St. Julian's got bombed in World War II and destroyed and it's been rebuilt. And so her... I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. The cell that she was living in was gone. So they rebuilt it, but they rebuilt it sort of big because it's a tourist attraction. Well, It's a saintly Mm. tourist attraction and you can go and you can pray in Julian of Norwich's cell, which is bigger than it was. (laughs) Any rate, yeah. So, and you know what? One of the things that impressed me about this is that it's like really right up from the harbor from, and we still have some of the, uh, the merchants houses, like they're humongous things. She's right in, she wasn't anywhere near the cathedral. She's in the shipping area. She's right where all the money is being made. Huh. 
I didn't know that. Yes. So you could go talk to her. Anybody could go talk to her. Marjorie Kemp did, didn't she? And I like to think about the day that Marjorie Kemp visited Julian of Norwich. Marjorie Kemp said that Julian of Norwich said that she was doing really, really well and she was great. I like to think that Julian of Norwich was an enormously polite person with great patience. And then she said her prayers because I personally would not have been patient with Marjorie Kemp. Not at all. I would not have been, but... um. <laughs> Yes, yes. You could go and talk to her and get spiritual guidance. And she's right in the center, not of the religious community, but the people who are focusing on money. Hmm. That makes the idea of having her be somebody who solves crimes because people come and talk to her even Uh more interesting. Are you totally going to write this book? I feel like I feel like it needs to exist. The Miss Marple-esque stories of Julian of Norwich. <laughs> Solving crimes from her little, like, oh yeah, it really does need to exist. I know. One of us has to do this. We love Julian of Norwich. And of course you can uh, visit Bury St. Edmunds. Uh, the Abbey is in ruins and they're really picturesque ruins and famous Victorians write poems about them. It's in ruins because there was a Henry VIII coming, wasn't there? And so he was going to smash that all down, but the cathedral still works and it's still there and it's very lovely. And you can also go to the Norfolk Lavender Farm. Oh, cool. Oh, I love the North of Norfolk Lavender Farm. You can learn all about lavender and how they grow lavender and how they harvest lavender. And you can buy lavender plants, which if you're my mother, you then smuggle into the United States. I can tell you this because she's dead. And so you can't arrest her now, governments. But there was some lavender that she'd never seen. And so she put it in her garden in Albuquerque. Please don't smuggle the lavender out. It's there's rule. The reason that we have rules for not taking things over borders is that we're, we try to various kinds of infestations down. And I mean, it is lavender. It's probably just fine, but I'm just saying. Anyway, you can buy lavender plants and you can buy a bunch of other nice things, little embroideries and stuff. And you can have tea at the Lavender Tea Room where they also have full breakfast and lunch. You can sign up for afternoon tea, but you have to do it 24 hours beforehand so they can make everything fresh and you can have lavender cake. Obviously, at some point, we're going to have to go to England and just do the tea room tour. Oh, yes, because doing the tea room tour, besides the Norfolk Lavender place, also involves a great many lovely houses and cathedrals where there are tea rooms every place. Yeah. Oh, I think there's one. Did we find out that there was one? What is that island that we want to go to that said it wasn't? Lundy. Lundy. The Isle of Lundy. Was there a tea room that we know of? Uh, you know what? That's a good question. I know there's a pub. Um, if there isn't, if there isn't, somebody's missing out. Surely with all of the National Trust stuff, there's a tea room down there. Surely. <laughs> so you can get lavender cake. I myself make a very fine lavender cake and it always impresses the hell out of everybody because nobody is like, oh, really? You can eat lavender? Yes, you can. But you don't want to put too much in whatever you're making because then it starts reminding people of soap. And so don't do that. Mm. And you, But you can have lavender cake all the time, really. And you can also buy lavender jam and lavender tea and lavender sugar and lavender fudge in the shop. Yeah. So, any rate, St. Airpoil, <laughs> East Anglia, your turn, Michelle. Well, I put Airpoil on the list because for a couple reasons. He's the first known king in England, not king of England, because it's not in... No, there's a bunch of kings in England. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, he's the first known English king to have been killed because of being a convert to Christianity. Yes. So, so that seemed like worth looking at. But there's a couple other reasons also. He is a good entry point into some really important things, uh, pieces of Anglo-Saxon England. One is that we know about him because of Bede. Bede, the venerable Bede. Is he still venerable or did they he's make him still ven- No, no, he's venerable. Okay. He's, but he was being called that. That's not a modern thing. He was being called that by the ninth century. Wow. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal. He picked that name up very, very quickly. And it's because he is the scholarly colossus of early medieval Europe, not just of England. He writes a ton. He was sent to the monastery to become an oblate at the age of seven. Mm. So his education starts as a child. He and Abbot um, Kaelfrith were one of only, a, or two of only a handful of survivors that uh, a plague hit Jarrow in 686, and it killed the vast majority of the monks. Jarrow had an excellent library, 200 books. So Bede was really, really well-educated and highly literate. He obviously knew Latin, of course, as well as English. He knew Greek. He studied Hebrew. He didn't master Hebrew as much. He wanted to read the Bible in the original language. Oh, what an interesting thing that early. I didn't know that he knew Greek. I didn't know that. It's really hard to overstate the importance of Bede in both in early medieval Europe and then as the Middle Ages continue, there are 160 manuscripts of an ecclesiastical history of the English people survive. That's, That's huge. Amazing. That's amazing. That's an enormously important and popular work then, because that means that there were way more manuscripts than that that were written. Yeah. And a one measure of Bede's influence is that he, one of his early works is about the computation of time. He becomes, he has, he has two different works. Um, Bede wrote about 60 books. He's spectacularly prolific. 60 books. <laughs> he wrote so much. And one of the things he became obsessed with was the calculation of time. Mm. And how do you calculate Easter? How on earth are we keeping track of time? How old is the world? He got accused of heresy at one point because he calculated that the world was 3,500 years old and not 5,000. <gasps> it was a it was a scandal. A scandal, I tell you. <laughs> Well, and he was wrong, but a lot of respect, a lot of respect for doing the computations anyway. But one of the measures of the influence of Bede is he settled on Anno Domini as a way of measuring time. He didn't invent this concept, but he adopted it as very uh-huh. useful that you count time from Christ's birth. And because he was using it and because he was so influential, it became the standard. Up until very recently. Well, now we do the same thing. We just call it different. <laughs> we call it common era. He's a huge influence on the Carolingian Renaissance. So Bede's work helps set the stage for the Carolingian Renaissance. He was made a doctor of the church in 1899. He's the only Englishman to receive that distinction from the Catholic church. 
really. His tomb and shrine in Durham Cathedral were destroyed in the Reformation, but in... I have some not nice things to say about the Reformation today. I'm apologizing to the Protestants. <laughs> I apologize to the Protestants in advance, but today is not a good day for things that happened on account of the Reformation. There was a lot of smashing of stuff. Yeah. Mm. So Bede had a shrine and a tomb. He, he was buried elsewhere, but then eventually his remains were translated to Durham Cathedral and in the Reformation, they were destroyed. And in 1831, his bones were found and reburied in a new tomb. So there is now a tomb again in Durham Cathedral that a person can go see. There is a museum at Jarrow now. Jarrow Hall, there's a whole complex now. There's an Anglo, a rebuilt Anglo-Saxon village, and there is a museum dedicated to Bede. So today is a good tourism day. <laughs> you can go you can go to Durham and Norfolk. All right. And you can go yeah, you could go to Jarrow and see they have a coffee house rather than a tea house, but Really? They do. They have a coffee house. Maybe they can't drink anything there because I need tea. <laughs> <laughs> so bead bead is the only way we know about Erpwald. Uh it huh. is he records it in his most famous book, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People, where he's telling how the the pagan Anglo-Saxons came to be converted to Christianity. So that's his, you know, that's the story he's telling in the book. That's why it's important to him. Okay. Yes. It's not what we would consider to be a objective history. That's not his interest. His interest is to tell the story of how the English people went from being these pagan immigrants to be, being Christians. But Bede is so much a source for this time period that it's only fairly recently that we started to ask ourselves questions about what that lens means. Hmm. Until fairly recently, Bede was just treated as straightforward objective history and you know he's he is he's careful he's but there is this filter this lens we're not talking about jeffrey of monmouth here we're talking yeah, about no, a no. whole different <laughs> level of historiography okay great yeah i know he's he's much more reliable than jeffrey of monmouth who as far as we can tell just makes things up <laughs> god i hope so <laughs> and we know we know some of bead sources we know what he had available to him it's interesting that we just talked about Matthew Paris because I think Bede and Matthew Paris have a lot in common. Hmm. They're, they're both these amazing polymaths. They're interested in everything. They're spectacularly prolific. They have access to important people and important books. And then they write and write and write. I think they're interesting writers to put alongside each other. They have a lot in common. But I will admit that I spent the vast majority of my research time on Sutton Hoo. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I was, I was hoping that this would be true. <laughs> all over Sutton Who. I am not surprised. <laughs> Anybody who well, okay, let me back up. Sutton Who, if anyone's listening who doesn't know what it is, Sutton Who is a phenomenally important discovery that was made in nineteen thirty-nine of an Anglo Saxon ship burial. How was it found? Is it one of those things where somebody was like plowing or like going on a walk? No, the landowner, the landowner, her name was uh, Edith Pretty. And they, these are mounds. So there was suspicion that they probably had archaeological significance. And she hired a, 
I don't like to call him amateur, but self-taught, not university educated, but incredibly experienced and deeply self-educated. Like he spoke more than one language, interested in everything. Um, Archaeologist named Basil Brown, and they found it. And what happened was when the scope of what they were discovering got out, that's when the professionals showed up and elbowed, <laughs> elbowed Basil Brown. Of course they did. Out of, of the way. Because he couldn't possibly let him, I mean, he was going to mess everything up, wasn't he? He wasn't going to do it right. You had to do it right and steal all the stuff. That's, I'm sorry about that. There is some disagreement about how rude it actually was. The book that I would recommend, if anybody wants to read about Sutton Who, the book I would recommend is Marvin Carver's 2017 so it's real recent book called the Sutton Hoo story encounters with early England and it is an excellent excellent place to start it's written for anybody to be able to read so it's very accessible but Martin Carver was the archaeologist who was in charge of the Sutton Hoo dig in the 80s and so he's incredibly well informed about what what was happening both in the site originally and then the work they were doing, because there there have been three digs at Sutton Hoo. The original dig in 1939 was complicated by the fact that war was about to break out. Right. The dig was up against a a time deadline, because if the, if they didn't get the work done before war broke out, they were going to lose the manpower. Got it, because everybody had to go fight the war instead of digging nice things yeah. up. Got and it. East Anglia was was seen and became a front line because of where it is. Yes, and all of those air bases, which I mentioned earlier. Yes, that's why they're there. Indeed, the, the Sutton Hoo site in 1942 gets, this is actually hard to believe, it got requisitioned as a training ground by the oh, army. No, no. <laughs> the mounds, I'm very sorry to tell you that the burial mounds got used as target practice. Oh, no, 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 no. Worse, no, worse, no. they got used for tank training. No, 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 no. Finally, somebody higher up in the army who had come in but was an archaeologist got wind of what was going on and he was like, stop! <laughs> you you stop you can't oh be doing that God. but when they went back in the 60s and did the second dig they could tell that you know they found all kinds of they they could tell that the the tanks had been driven over the burial mounds and also there was a crap ton of cartridges <laughs> the treasure was discovered in july of 1939 germany invaded poland on september 1st that is not long at all that is not long. I think it was July 21st that the first piece of gold was found. And they had one month because it was August 25th that they wrapped up. You know, it's not like war appeared out of nowhere. People no, knew. No, they knew it was coming. They yeah. knew it was coming. And, you know, this is one of the things that I really appreciate historical fiction for. There's there's a 2007 book written by John Preston, who is the nephew of one of the archaeologists who worked on the site. It's called The Dig, and it's a fictionalization of the discovery. You know, it might be that if you were not interested in these things, you might say to yourself, a novel about people digging things up. I want to do something else. <laughs> you might not think it was interesting. One of the things it does, both it and the 2021 Netflix film based on it, highly recommended, by the way. Okay. 
the Netflix films, I'm going to create my own little heresy here and tell you to not bother to read the book and just go watch the movie. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it does a really amazing job of contextualizing the find in this threat, the, the looming threat of the war that everybody knows is coming. And the film is, it's, it was, it's a made for Netflix film, but there are big stars in it. Carrie Mulligan plays Edith Pretty, Ralph Fiennes plays Basil Brown. So kind of a big deal, the cast. Thank you. I will go find that. That sounds like something I'd like. I am going to tell you that I had a visceral thrill watching them brush the dirt away as they found the treasures. It was so exciting. I've seen pictures of the dig and the, the people who did the film did a bang up job. They went to, there's actually really interesting blog posts from the British Museum where they talk about the actors and the producers and the prop people coming to talk to them and see archival footage, archival pictures to see the objects. They hire a specialist to create replicas of the objects that they want to show being discovered. And the curator has the same, had the same kind of reaction I did of, this is the closest I'm ever getting to being present. They invited him to come and see the set. And it, he, was, he said it was like the archival pictures had come to life. They, the actors were dressed in what, what the people they were portraying were wearing. So very exciting. It's a fictionalization. A lot of the fictionalization pieces are more about the interpersonal relationships. So there's some there's some interpersonal conflicts that get enhanced. There's kind of some hints of romance, and in one case, a an actual romance that didn't happen. But <laughs> you know, that's that's what historical fiction does. Right. Yes, you have to put the romance in the pieces about disc the, the watching it for the recreation of the discovery is well worth the hour and 50 minutes that I spent so doing it. it isn't a movie about digging things up. It's a movie about finding wonderful things in the dirt, which you have to do really quickly because war is coming. And what the film does that is that it's very good at that the novel kind of hints at these kind of at themes that the movie then makes more explicit. So there's a hint, for example, in the in the film of the irony of the discovery of this burial that shows how civilized and advanced 7th century Anglo-Saxons were in the context of this modern, supposedly more advanced society about to blow itself to smithereens. Right. Okay. I like that. I like that a lot. So there's there's a lot of things like that where the movie takes a theme that the book had been sort of hinting at and says no let me just let me just make this a little clearer for you. <laughs> um, one thing the film does really well is a comparison with the Sutton Who dig or the Sutton Who discovery and King Tut, which apparently was actually a thing that was happening in 1939. That huh. Sutton Who gets called England's Valley of the Kings. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but that is also a reminder that, you know, we're not actually all that far from the discovery of King Tut. And so right. when you have this unpillaged burial, of course, it gets compared to King Tut. Right. So what was in that dig? Why is this such a big deal? It is a big deal for a number of reasons. One is that the ship was enormous. The ship is 90 feet long. <laughs> 
So can we all just have a moment where we stop and think about the logistics of digging and then burying after you've dragged it up from the river, a 90 foot long ship. So this is a big deal for a number of reasons. There was a lot of argument about whether the Anglo-Saxons sailed and if so, how sophisticated it was. So finding a 90 foot ship (laughs) from probably 625-ish was a big hairy deal. We still, to this day, they, we do not know whether they used sails. They probably did. We just don't have any evidence of it. There's no evidence of masts? Apparently not. There's evidence of oars. There's definitely oars, but we don't know whether they used sails. I would guess that they did because it seems blatantly obvious that you would, but you know, we like to have evidence for things before we right. assert that they Although were true. Although probably if you can build a 90 foot ship and sail it around you, probably have figured out how to use some cloth, especially when some other people that you would have run into are using cloth. The 1939 dig finds the Mound one, the the undiscovered ship burial. This is a big hairy deal because of the 18 mounds that are at Sutton Hoo, only two were unrobbed. And this was one of them. The others have all been pillaged. This is the other moment where we're going to cast aspersions on the Reformation. Because one of the things that happened in the 16th century after the Reformation is that a whole bunch of cultural and kind of perceived as superstitious psychological barriers about grave robbing, that something bad will happen to you if you go over and disturb that grave, that gets thrown aside in the Reformation as superstition. And so consequently, consequently, you have a whole bunch of looting that happens at Sutton Hoo. Mound 2, one of the things that the 1980s dig, it's a dig, but it's more of a planned excavation. One of the things that they showed for sure is that the other mound, mound one, the other big one, had been a ship burial. And it's entirely gone. It's all the way looted. But but there is what they found, they did chemical analysis of the soil there and they, they can tell that there was a body and they can tell that bronze was here because that you can detect whatever atoms are in bronze. I we're we're getting pretty far afield, but Martin Carver, the archaeologist, says that chemical analysis of the soil proved that Mound 2 had also been an extensive ship burial, but it was entirely looted. So there were 18 mounds, mm-hmm. and we don't know how many of those 18 mounds might well have been ship burials. Correct. We know at least two were. Okay. Because we found Mound 1. Yeah, Mound 1 is is the Sutton Hoo, you know, the big one with the gold buckle and the awesome, amazing shoulder clasps and the sword and the shield and the mail coat and the helmet, the famous, famous helmet and the scepter with the stag on top, just all of the stuff that, that we've seen from Sutton Hoo. That's the big one. They excavated the other one, Mount 17, in the 80s, they excavated 17, the only other one that was found intact. And in there, that was good stuff too. It wasn't treasure exactly. It was a lesser burial, but there was a horse and they found in that, the first complete Anglo-Saxon horse harness ever found. Wow. 
they found some weird stuff too in the 80s. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. I would recommend it if anybody hasn't seen pictures of the Sutton Hoo treasure, go right now. Just pause <laughs> and go look at it. Pull up the British Museum's website and take a look at it. It's phenomenal. It changes. I mean, one of the things that the movie does really well is, is show how this is a game changer for how we understood Anglo-Saxon England. We had thought about this. They have Charles Phillips say the Dark Ages are no longer dark, that, that you can't believe that these people are a bunch of savage barbarians if they can make stuff like this. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. also, there were things in it from all over the world. So it establishes yeah, the that there trading. were- it establishes these amazing trading relationships. There were things in there from Byzantium. There were Merovingian coins there. So you have all of this international trading. And this is connected to our dude, Erpwald, because, well, for a couple reasons, but one of the big ones, the, the big one is that this is probably, we say, I would say that as scholars were 88% certain that this is the grave of his father, Radwald. There are some people who want to say it's Erpwald, but I personally tend to agree with the people who would say that, no, he's, he didn't, he didn't reign for long enough. He's a three, four years. Yeah. Um, One of the big pieces of evidence is that Radwald has an unusually long reign for this time period. He reigns from 599 until his death in 624. So we know from our, from the many times we've looked at early medieval kingship, that's an unusually long reign. It's a long period of stability. Bede has glowing things to say about Redwald. Really? So then the idea was, his idea was that not just that he had a long reign, but that it was a good one? Yes. Yes. And Bede talks about the amount of influence that Redwald has. That he he doesn't just have this little bitty area. He's got this big area that he has influence over. So the argument is that you have to be somebody who is worth getting this kind of monument because this is a big deal. Right. And you have to be somebody whose kingdom could have afforded it. Right. You have to be somebody who is leaving a, a kingdom that has the resources and the will to remember you in this way. Mm-hmm. And Erpwald is killed because he's just converted to Christianity. There's this whole thing going on with alliance with Edwin. He hasn't been there long, and it's, it's problematic. It is. It seems unlikely to me that if you assassinated your predecessor, that you're going to then give him this kind of burial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and we think that his. Uh, we think that the guy that assassinated him probably was the next king. We don't know for sure. But yeah. even if he wasn't, no. Radwald also was a little bit infamous for wanting to have a foot in both camps of the pagan and the Christianity. And and the, the things in the Sutton Hoo burial are a mix. He's got some of both. So Radwald was proposed really early on. They brought in, oh man, Martin Carver talks about the incredible scholar they brought in. And he told them immediately, this is Radwald. And everybody kind of went, well, maybe. But then it turned out, yeah, most people went, yeah, okay, probably. He could tell the time that precisely. 
Yeah. One among the visitors who were lucky enough to see the ship at the time of its excavation was the great Anglo-Saxon scholar Hector Monroe Chadwick of Clare mm. College, Cambridge, who had been tracked to his Herefordshire hideaway and told of the discovery. Driven by his wife at his preferred speed of 20 miles per hour, he made his way to Sutton Hoo, arriving on August 18th. So he got there before the dig was even over. This is sort of like dragging um, Sigebert out of his <laughs> monastery in order to go, you have, you have to come. Luckily, no guess is involved here. Okay. Chadwick's knowledge was and arguably remains unrivaled, and he is said to have immediately identified the ship burial as that of Radwald, who was king of East Anglia from 599 to his death in about 725. So they brought in the expert. He said, it's Radwald. And everybody went, eh, okay. And then over the next 50 years, as people published, they went, yeah, yeah, it probably is. So it's a humongous longship. And what's the stuff in it? They're all of his, he has amazing grave goods. Just amazing. There's his arms and armament. So, you know, the sword the mail shirt. The mail shirt is a big deal because it's a complete mail shirt. And it actually, interestingly, has alternating rings of riveted and the other kind where you just butt the rings up against each other, which is fascinating that the mail is made that way. The helmet, of course, is huge because you only have like three helmets. Anglo-Saxon helmets are f spectacularly rare. They're way rarer even than swords and this is true for the vikings too we have very very few of these helmets the helmet got smashed to bits because the the roof of the burial chamber collapsed eventually under the weight of the, the mound and also the soil in east anglia is very very acidic and so the ship is actually not even there the ship is oh the ship the wood is entirely gone the body is entirely gone because of how acidic the soil is, you the, the ship is detectable because the rivets were in situo. Got it. And the, of the sword, it, the, the hilt, the hilt survived, right? We've seen, yeah, yeah which mm -hmm. is which is all fancy. I have I have cool stuff to tell you about the the sword pommel. Actually, does the blade survive? Some of it. So the 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 reason that we have more swords than helmets from this time period is that helmets were more fragile. I mean, you know, if you dropped a bunch of stuff on them, apparently they smash. They smashed into a bazillion pieces. Mm -hmm. One conservator spent an entire year reassembling it. <laughs> and then later on, they did it over again, because having learned more stuff from a comparison, at this point, they decided they'd better look at... because. The belief had been that these little kingdoms didn't really cross the sea. Why would you believe that? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, the belief was that they would sail, but up and down the coast, that going uh -huh. across the water would have been scary, scary, and they didn't do it in the seventh century. Because it was dark ages and they couldn't see anything. There were no lights. Yeah. It, the, the belief was that nobody did that until the Vikings, that that was their Not claim only to the fame. Vikings. Only the Vikings could sail. And they were Vikings. They had a different temperament altogether and way of living. Okay, anyway, all right. There are some fascinating videos on YouTube from the British Museum. Oh, because, and we really should mention this because I think Edith Pretty should get her due. Edith Pretty was designated. The inquest determined that she was the owner 
of the the treasures. Huh. Incalculable wealth. Huh. And she donated the finds to the British Museum. Yay her. It was the largest donation ever made to the British Museum in the donor's lifetime. It was spectacularly generous. So this was before the ruling that you had to give stuff up when you found it. Yep. This is 1939. And the the rules at that point was that if it was buried and there was reason to believe that the person was intending to come back for it, it belonged to the government. And the rationale for that was that the government believed that you would bury something if you were trying to avoid getting taxed on it. So it was they, they believed that burying was a tax avoidance strategy. Whoa, got it. But that if it had been put in the ground and the owner was never intending to come back to it, it was a grave or something, then it belonged to the property owner. And of course, the rules the rules are different now. So when yes, they are. So when they people well, they discovered the Book of Kells without the cover, not so long after it was buried. But if they had been having these rules, whosever farm it was that the Book of Kells was under a sod, that would have been theirs, even though it had been stolen from the monastery. Well, the government could have argued in that case that well, that that had been stolen and they were ditching it. The the question would have been whether they were intending to come back for it. No, they weren't because they wanted the fancy cover and they didn't care about the pages. Then probably, yes, that would have belonged to the the landowner. As to the the whole subject of finding things now with the different rules, have you seen the the Detectorist? Um, I have seen the first season of this, yeah. Because it's a it's a wonderful show, and it's it's worth comparing it to the Staffordshire hoard that the fairly recent discovery where the metal detectorists found the other really enormous Anglo-Saxon. I mean, there's nine pounds of gold in there. Wow, it's, um, it's and, huge. And the detectorists had to give that one up, didn't they? Um, yes, because the rules at that point, but they were compensated for it. Oh, so they each got. A million pounds because they found it and so they had some rights but they weren't allowed to just keep it they they got compensation as the finders both the landowner and the actual discoverer of the staffordshire hoard were compensated so are those the current rules that if you find something you have to give it to the british government but you get some money yep okay yeah, you get you get money based on its value. And so when it was sold, they got part of that. Okay. They were compensated. The idea, I think, is that you want to discourage people from taking it and selling it on the black market. So you don't just tell people, you know, you have to right. you have to turn it over with uh, no compensation. Uh, now, although they do. <laughs> of course they do. They the do. pretty the pretty family actually Edith Pretty died in 1942. Mm. As her son was only 12 at that point. Edith Pretty is an interesting person who deserves a lot of conversation just on her own. Her son was born when she was 47 and her husband had been a few years older than her and when their son was 4 her husband died of Um, stomach cancer. He was only maybe 57 at that point. Their son was about four. So when she died in 1942, the trustees for her son sold the house, but the pretty family maintained rights to the mounds. They wrote into the land covenant that they were the only ones who could decide 
whether the mounds would get any further excavation. And they maintained that those rights up until Sutton Hoo became a national trust site in 1992. They specifically maintained those rights because they didn't want the land to be sold to somebody who was going to go in a treasure hunt. Or somebody who might use it to drive tanks over and blow things up either. Yeah, it's not an accident that all that, that the tank thing happened after she had already died because there's no way Edith Pretty would have put up with that. No. So tell me again, when did the National Trust take it over? 1992. And why was that? That the the family, was there some kind of thing about new laws and they had to give it up or what? No, what happened was, so there was the original dig in 1939. There was another dig in the 60s. And then in the 1980s, Martin Carver, the author of, of this book here, gets tapped to go and do more work at Sutton Hoo. And the site at that point was in bad shape. It was still privately owned but there wasn't and and it was um scheduled so it was listed as a historic site but that does not require the landowners to do any kind of maintenance on it so it was being overrun and destroyed by rabbits and bracken apparently wait apparently the root system sorry i i just want to take a little moment where i think about rabbits and bracken yeah rabbits live in holes yes they were doing bad bad things to the mounds the mounds have been plowed over they're much shorter than they used to be they're meters shorter than they used to be wow um but there would have been there would have been dirt getting on top of them so like are there the mounds are shorter than they used to be but are they but the but the treasures are still some way down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the plowing didn't, they're, they're so far, the, the burial chambers are so far down that the plowing did not uncover any of the burial chambers. That was the 16th century treasure hunters who did a lot of that. Uh-huh. And they knew it was there because mounds. Okay. Yeah. The digs in The dig in the 1980s was really about establishing the range of the site. So not just about treasure hunting, about establishing the range of the site, how long it had been used as a burial site and what the context was for this within East Anglia. So is this an, you know, is this kind of a backwater site? Is this towards the center of civilization? What, what, how does this fig feature within the wider context of the kingdom? Mm-hmm. Um, and also about going in there and trying to do some conservation because the mounds were just, they, I mean, they, they were saying about how much damage the root system of the bracken was doing to the mounds. And of course the so, rabbits are in there digging inside and burrowing. And So bracken has really long roots? According to Martin Carver, I didn't know this, but I'm willing to believe it. Weeds tend to have spectacular root systems. Yeah, hardy, hardy plants. Yeah, okay. They found some weird shit in this dig. (laughs) Well, really, what did they find? (laughs) They found a whole nother burial ground on the edge of the mounds with bodies that have survived 
kind of, but look like they're from Pompeii, only made out of sand. So they have this whole section of graves that they called the Sandmen. That's creepy. It is wild. Okay, so instead of the acid eating the bodies away, something else happened. Yeah, these ones are later, so they they the sand filled in as the bodies disintegrated and left body-shaped sand. So how much later? Oh, my Lord. Well, that's one of the things they were trying to work out. The oh. other thing about it is that the bodies, this, these, this part of the burial is um, odd. So let me, let me just go over to, to read from Carver. It became increasingly clear that most of these bodies were buried in positions that were odd. One was kneeling, head to the floor of the grave, one stretched out, hand above the head, another folded forward, another folded back, another sideways, and strangest of all, one splayed out in a hurtling position, accompanied by a wooden object that vaguely resembled a primitive type of plow. So they were like, what the heck is going on with this? Right. That's You don't usually find bodies done like that. And so that open up a whole nother can of worms because, and there eventually for a while, there was a theory that Sutton who was a um, persisting pagan enclave. And there's reasons to think that, which of course also ties us back to Erpwald. Um, and actually there are people who still think this is true. They, the, the area around Sutton who is apparently um, the absence of churches is apparently very interesting. <laughs> there, really? there are not any, ancient churches in huh. the area of Sutton who there's reason there's, there's good archeological reasons to think that this is a site in which paganism persisted much later in um, Ang- East Anglian history than elsewhere. But this probably is not at, they, at first, th- at first glance, they thought this, this is probably sacrifices, but then they, um, d- they, they kind of, pivoted from that and decided they're probably executions now. Oh, which is very different. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the people end up just as dead, but the whole purpose is different. Yeah. Yeah. So these are not later as in like 18th century, but they're not seventh century. They're more like, you know, ninth and 10th century. So they're later early medieval, if that makes sense. Why would you execute people and then bury them close to where your forefathers had buried royal royalty that is a question that they have been asking and do not have an answer to yeah i got no answer i have no answer to it either but unless the meaning of the mounds had disappeared by that point you know they they knew there were dead people there but they didn't know oh you mm-hmm. know they were important. and these are these burials are not mounds they're they're regular flat burials, satellite burials, they're calling them. On YouTube, there is a thing called Curator's Corner from um, videos from the current curator of early medieval artifacts at the British Museum. And she, her, her two videos about the Sutton Hoo sword and helmet were just amazing. Highly okay. recommended. Go watch them. Now you're the going to put about, the links in the show notes, right? Yeah, for sure. The helmet 
uh, she talks about how it was in pieces and how they reconstructed it and how they had to do it twice because the first one they came to realize probably was not actually how it was. The one about the sword was just absolutely mind blowing because she has done some real careful work on it and determined that we we almost certainly know that the wearer of the sword was left-handed. Really? Yes. I, I'm, I'm, my mind is blown in a couple ways because, first of all, I was taught that everything in Sutton Hoo was ceremonial and wouldn't have been worn. But she can tell that there is wear pattern on the sword pommel cap. Oh. And what she can tell specifically is where the, you know how if you're wearing a sword, you often rest the heel of your hand on the pommel. That's what she can see is the wear from that. And it is um, the pommel has the pommel of a fancy sword has the really fancy side and the less fancy side. And the less fancy side would be what's against your hip. Mm -hmm. And the really fancy side is what's facing out. So she can tell from the alignment of the fancy side and where the wear is, where the, um, the twisted gold of the pommel, the, the wire that has been twisted to look like gold beads is mm -hmm. worn. It's, it's smooth on that side. The, so the person's right. That's how she knows. Right, that's how she knows because the right hand, the heel of the right hand was resting there. And of course, if you're wearing the sword on the right hand side, that means you're left-handed. Right. Goodness. There's a bunch of stuff going on, way more than I had known. I, you know, I didn't know these things. But, I mean, I know Sutton Who, but I did not know all these things. Hmm. You had fun, didn't you? I had. Um, I, I, there is so much stuff about Sutton Who on, on YouTube, and it's really, really cool to go see it. But, but the thing I would recommend if you're only going to watch one thing is to watch Sue Brennan, the Brenning, the curator's video about the sword where she explains how she knows that a it was worn enough to have this wear pattern on it which is mind-blowing but makes a certain amount of sense that if you were the king and you'd been king for 25 years you probably would have ceremonial parade armor but by that point it would have seen enough wear you know you he right. probably didn't wear it into battle Okay. Uh, but uh, but her analysis of the helmet was that he could have. The helmet is functional, which blew my mind too. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend those. I had the biggest blast going off and reading about Sutton Hoo. <laughs> I'm I glad. did not. There was so much of this. I thought I knew. This is part of it is I thought I knew Sutton Hoo pretty well. It's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal. And I learned so much new stuff that I did not know. So Erpwald, the oh, guy yeah, who, who yeah, gets we were two, about <laughs> he gets like two sentences in bead, but he is this, he is part of this way of understanding early, early medieval England that, you know, thank goodness we have bead, but thank goodness we have archaeology. Yeah. And yeah. thank goodness the grave robbers yeah. missed one. Yes, and and we it's not just the grave robbers that we're getting rid of things. And one of the reasons you were, you know we were talking about earlier off um, off the recording is one of the reasons we don't have a lot of information about uh, the uh, old English is that the Vikings 
burned the manuscripts. Yep. They burned the monasteries. It did not help. It did the the dissolution of the monasteries didn't help either because that yep. increased the um, treasure hunting. Yeah. So all of this, all of these properties that had been owned by the church when they got turned over into private hands, mm-hmm. there there was a run on digging and trying to find things. I did not know there was a um, 16th and 17th century fad for digging up the past, but I suppose that makes some sense that when you have all this property changing hands and, you know, all you need is one person to make a spectacular discovery and now everybody's digging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's like the Vikings um, taking the book of Kells, not for what was in it, but because of the jeweled cover. It's not like you were looking for religious artifacts because the religion was clearly superstition to the people who were digging stuff up. You were digging things up because they might be worth something. Yeah. But yeah, the, so who knows what got thrown away at that point. And they did find, actually, when they went back and re-excavated Mound 2, the one that has the ship burial that was entirely gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the ways they can tell that is that the the ship rivets are all scattered on the outside of the mound. So uh, it got dug into. Yeah, got it. Um, they, they did actually find little pieces of things that had gotten smashed. Uh, including some 16th century pottery from the lamps that they were using when they were digging in there. So they even know what they can even date the thieves. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They can date the thieves, but they found little pieces of broken objects that had gotten, you know, smashed during the robbery and then just sort of left. So, uh, so we're fortunate to have Sutton who we're fortunate that the 16th century, um, I, I feel I feel viscerally ill at the idea of the gold belt clasp being melted down. Oh yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Let's not go there. Yeah. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. But that's what they would do because it wasn't worth anything except as uh, money to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think I did mention that we know for sure that there was a body in, in Mound 1. Um, there was an argument for a long time because they didn't find a body. There was an argument that maybe it was a cenotaph, mm-hmm. um, you know, but but we do know now um, from chemical uh, how, analysis how of the soil. Um, chemical analysis of the sh- soil oh, oh, of shows, shows potassium where the body would have been. Uh, yeah, that would be us. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, so... Yeah, science, science and archaeology is helping us out a lot because they're, they're able to analyze what's gone from what it left, the little atomic bits that it left in the soil. Oh, lovely. Just lovely. Okay. Now, I have a feeling that you could talk about Sutton Hoo for like, you know, another day and a half. Uh, probably. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Highly recommend Martin Carver's book, The Sutton Hoo Story. Go watch the Netflix movie, The Dig. Go watch Sue Brenning. Bren- I know her last name is Brunning with a U. Um, and they have given her the hashtag Sutton Sue, which I think is adorable. That is nice. <laughs> Sutton, Sue. Sutton Sue. Okay. I'm going to do these things myself. Shall we, um, shall we say farewell to our beloved Sutton Who? I'm and glad we got to ways. talk about Sutton You Hoo. got to talk about Sutton Who. Yeah.
and I got to talk about the runes and the lavender farm. So it was all, it's all very good. So that was our discussion of the assassination of Eärpwald, the king of East Anglia, and some other stuff that we really wanted to talk about. And so we did that. The next time you hear from us, we're going to be discussing the sheer dreadfulness of Henry VI, Holy Roman Emperor, who did many, many bad things. And so we'll focus just on, on him. And um, I'll probably be talking about the Holy Roman Empire. Why not? And his multitudinous crimes. His multitudinous crimes. Uh, this has been True Crime Medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. We can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcast and every place where the podcasts are hanging out. And you can find us on truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word. And if you go there, you can read the show notes and the transcriptions. And we've got links to the podcast there. And you can leave comments, which um, we love to read the comments. And let us know if you can think of any medieval uh, crimes that we ought to pay attention to. That you know, And if we haven't got them on our list, we'll probably put them on our list. And you can uh, send us messages also through there. Yeah. Yeah, this has been True Crime Medieval. Bye. Bye.